Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Seek First Podcast. I'm Rick Brown. We talk about everything here, life, seeking God, biblical truth, today's culture, and whatever is on my guest's radar to unpack. We want to understand what is happening around us. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Let's jump in. All right, let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is a United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position at his feet. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, Kill the Americans! As Mansour and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Mansour in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself. But if he does, his two teammates lying at his feet will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates lying at his feet receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, You will not take my friends. I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsoor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsoor's High School, just south of here in Garden Grove, California, built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsoor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the SEALs wear dominates the 50-yard line. <laughs> January 2019, North Island, California, just south of here, just right near San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsoor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. Daniel McCoy knows of this ship. He's on a ship right near there. It sits down there in San, Fran in the, uh, San Diego Bay. This is Monsoor's uh, mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. 
There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, many people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it was written down by religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. And it's got miracles in it, like a resurrection. How many people in this room have ever seen someone resurrected from the dead after you knew they were dead for at least 36 hours? Yeah, none of us. Why? Because it doesn't happen. In fact, if you're a Christian, you have to believe something none of us have ever seen. How rational is that? Well, I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That is actually from our TV show. It's on every Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378. How many people here have DirecTV? Can I see your hands? Please. Like 12 of us. Come on. <laughs> friends don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you got to get DirecTV. Actually, that's not true. It's on Roku. How many people have Roku? All right, Roku, that's much better. Look for NRB, National Religious Broadcasters TV on Roku at 6 p.m. here on the West Coast. And if you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping California right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, it's on our website, crossexamine.org, right up there in the left-hand corner at that time. We're also on radio, a bunch of stations around the country. But you can listen to it podcasted. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. In fact, this is going to serve as our outline here today. We're going to cover these four questions. This morning, we're just going to cover question one, does truth exist? And then tonight, we'll cover does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament true? And then if I time it just right tonight, we'll have absolutely no time for questions. No, no, no. We'll have time for questions later tonight. Uh, so if you want to come back for that. But why are these the four questions? First question, does truth exist? Why is that important? Because you hear people saying, there's no truth, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative, right? Well, if there's no truth, obviously Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? Of course there's truth. I mean, would you ever go to school if there was no truth? Would you ever read a book? Would you ever go to church? Would you ever be able to catch someone in a lie if there was no truth? 
mean, lies presuppose truth. Of course there's truth. We're going to deal with that first. Second question, does God exist? I hope to show you tonight through three arguments that there really is a theistic God. That's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who creates everything and sustains everything to this very minute. We're going to... We're going to look at three arguments. Now, these arguments are in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know them. In fact, you can establish that God exists without any reference to any religious work. You know that God exists, and we'll show you the evidence for that tonight. Third question, are miracles possible? Obviously, people don't think miracles are possible. They don't think resurrections can occur. They don't seem to see them. What do we do about that? I hope to show you tonight that not only are miracles possible, but, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are admitting the evidence for this miracle. We'll see that tonight. Then we're going to get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if the evidence is good enough from the New Testament documents and other evidence that one event from the ancient world took place. It's critical to Christianity. What is that event? The resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, game over, Christianity is true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week. Because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. As the Apostle Paul himself said in his first letter to the Corinthians. Do you realize that Christianity is a worldview that you can investigate and discover whether or not it's really true. It's not just someone's philosophy. You can look at historical evidence and see if, did this really happen? And if it did, it's true. If it didn't, it's false. Now you might say, well, how do you know the entire Bible's true? We cover that in the book, but here's the short answer. If Jesus really rose from the dead, if he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God teaches is true, Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. You say, why trust Jesus? Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. <laughs> All right? Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, Frank, I've heard that we're just supposed to have faith. We're not supposed to get evidence. We're just supposed to believe regardless of evidence. Blind faith. Is that true? No. It's not true at all. In fact, even the scriptures tell us we ought to get reasons for what we believe. Peter is famously quoted for saying this. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey. All right? <laughs> but we're supposed to give evidence for what we believe. And this is where we get the word apologetics from. It doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It comes from a Greek word, apologia, that Peter uses in this passage here. We're supposed to get evidence that Christianity is true. So that's what I want to do today. And we're going to start right here at point one. Does truth exist? Are you guys ready to go? You ready to go? All right. Now, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, God speak. That was almost lamer than the first service. 
He didn't say it that way. He didn't say, you can't handle the truth. If he had said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. That's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right, let's try it again. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now that felt better, didn't it? Didn't you always want to do that when Pastor Rob was up here? You can't handle Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. Well, if you don't get anything else out of what we talk about here this morning or tonight, this is going to be the most important thinking skill we're going to talk about. And if you get this thinking skill down, half of what you need to know to defend the Christian faith, you'll already know. Why? Because half the battle is discovering what is false. And this thinking skill will help you uncover what is false. And if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of false ideas and false philosophies all over our culture. And you can save yourself a lot of time and pain if you can identify these false philosophies and then avoid them. So you can concentrate on truth. Now this thinking skill is so powerful that... Unfortunately, many people don't realize it because we don't take logic anymore. And it's just using logic. In fact, how many people in here have ever taken a course in logic? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, see these people right here? These are the homeschoolers. See these people right here? Okay. <laughs> if we taught this in public school, we'd have a lot fewer problems. Just the logic. And here's the thinking skill. The easiest way of showing you the thinking skill is to give you an example of using it. If someone were to say, there is no truth. You should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Is that true? Yeah, if somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, hey, is that true? <laughs> is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true. But it claims to be true. <laughs> Did I say that right? Yeah. Can everybody see that this is a self-defeating statement? What's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement violates one of the fundamental laws of logic. The law of non-contradiction, which says opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Look, either truth exists or it doesn't, but not both. And if you try and say it doesn't, you're uttering a truth claim. It defeats itself. It would be like if I said I can't speak a word in English. What would you say? You're using English to say it. It would be like if I said my parents had no kids that lived. Or my brother is an only child. Or everything I say is a lie. Some of you will get that tomorrow. <laughs> or all generalizations are false. Some of you will never get that one. <laughs> See, these are known as self-defeating statements, and they're everywhere in our culture, and you've got to get good at exposing them. And here's how you do it. This is the thinking skill. You turn the claim on itself. You turn the claim on itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you ask, is that And you don't even have to be unkind doing this. You're not making statements, you're asking questions, right? Is it true that there's no truth? See what people say. Let's do a few more. Suppose someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth. If you turn the claim on itself, what are you going to say? Yeah, is that an absolute truth? Or you might say, are you absolutely sure? Right? Can everybody see that this is an absolute truth claim up here, claiming there are no such thing as absolute truth claims? It's like saying all truth is relative. Is that a relative truth? Right? It's the same thing. It it's defeats itself. Now, in our culture, it's not said this way much anymore. Here's how it's said. There isn't the truth, only my truth. 
What's the problem with this claim? If you turn the claim on itself, what question are you going to ask them? This is the interactive portion of the program. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Someone says that, you say, is that just your truth or the truth? Right? Is this statement up here just your truth? If it's just your truth, in other words, just your opinion, why should I believe it? But if you're saying it's the truth, well, the first half of the statement says there are no the truths. Can everyone see this is a the truth statement claiming there are no the truth statements? It defeats itself. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Now, I know this is not popular in our culture to say what I'm about to say, but it's just the truth. There's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as my truth. There's just the truth. Although, you know, people will say, you got your truth, I got my truth, you live your truth, I'll live my truth, we'll all get along. It sounds so right, doesn't it? It sounds so Oprah. You know, <laughs> it sounds like we all ought to believe this, but it's logically self-defeating. I mean, to say you have your own truth would be like saying you have your own math. I mean, imagine if Pastor Rob asked me, he said, hey, Frank, I need some extra help around the house this afternoon after these services. Why don't you come on over? You can work for a little while. I'll pay you $10 an hour. Actually, Pastor Rob would never do this. <clears throat> he doesn't pay that much. Anyway, <laughs> suppose I go to his house and I work for 15 hours. And he goes, okay, what do I owe you? And I go, let's see, $10 an hour, 15 hours. You owe me $150,000. He goes, I don't owe you $150,000. I owe you $150,000. And I go, oh, no, no, you don't understand. I have my own math. But he's going to say, you're crazy. I don't, there's no my math or your math. There's just math. There's no my truth or your truth. There's just truth. And the sooner we realize this, the sooner we're going to stop a lot of the bloodletting that's going on in our culture right now where people are trying to pursue something that's impossible to pursue. And hopefully they can get back to focusing on the truth. Now, it isn't always said this way. Sometimes it's said this way. Um, it's true for you, but not for me. Well, Christianity may be true for you, but Buddhism's true for me. What do you say to that? This is also self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, you want to ask them, hey, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, it's true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It violates itself. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller and say, look, the economy's down, inflation's up, I need some extra money. I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller uh, looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, you only have $6.14 in your account. It's easy to get the money. You simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. <laughs> Are you going to get the money? No. If it's true there was only $6.14 in your account, that's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. Or let's say you're going a little fast on Highway 101 out here. You're going 100 miles an hour. Cop sees you, pulls you over. Walks up to your car, knocks on the window, you put the glass down. He says, you're going 100. Never fear. You simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. And you speed away. <laughs> he can't give you a ticket if it's not true for you. No. If it's true you were going 100, 
That's true for all people at all times and all places. And we're referring to you at that time. It's just true. And by the way, if God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, that's true for all people at all times and all places, whether you believe it or not. Yeah. By the way, it's also true that if God doesn't exist or Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's false whether or not you believe it. In fact, I ask a lot of church people, I'll say, hey, do you, do you think Christianity is true? And most will say yes. Do you know what answer when I ask them, why do you think it's true, that I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? <laughs> hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. This is a very important distinction. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible writers are telling the truth. That's evidence. That's apologetics. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go from belief that to belief in. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is just of the head. Belief in is not only of the head, it's of the heart. And some people don't want to believe in. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? You guys are sharp this morning. And you got an hour less sleep. That's amazing. Yet James says even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you realize that if demons exist, and they do, and if God exists, and he does, that the demons know that God exists better than we do? But they don't trust in him. Why? They don't want to trust in him. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. You see, faith is not believing without evidence. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. Trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. And what we're doing here is we're trying to give you evidence that Christianity is true. Whether or not you accept it, well, that's up to you. In fact, we know this in relationships, don't we? When I first met my wife 37 years ago down in San Diego, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is just of the head. Belief in is not only of the head, but it's of the heart. Now, most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about second kind. It's talking about belief in. After you know that it's true, trust in Jesus for your salvation. In fact, John puts this all in one verse at the end of chapter 20 where he says that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. You get belief that and belief in in one verse. But if you don't want to believe in, you don't have to. God will not force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want them now, you're not going to want them in eternity. Oh, this is another statement you're going to hear in our culture. There's no truth in anything but science. What's the problem with this? What question are you going to ask somebody who says all truth comes from science? 
Science changes. Say again. What are you going to say? Yeah, you're going to say, if someone says there's no truth anything but science, you're going to say, is that a scientific truth? Notice this is not a scientific statement up top. That's not a statement of science. It's a statement about science. In fact, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we have a section in there. Here's the title of the section. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Why am I saying that? Because all data needs to be gathered, and then all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Scientists do this. You ever wonder why you get conflicting information on COVID? You say, oh, follow the science. Which science? Which scientists? Look, if scientists have good data and they interpret it properly, you'll get good advice. If they have good data, don't interpret it properly. Bad advice. You're not going to get good advice. If they have bad data, it doesn't matter how they interpret it. You're going to get bad advice. If there's a political agenda, oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> Why do we think that scientists are immune to the same three temptations the rest of us are not immune to? What are the three great temptations that cause us to sin? John talks about them in 1 John 2. I'll summarize them. Sex, money, and power, or pride. Those are the three things, as we'll see later tonight, that will cause people to even murder. By the way, they're the same three things that will cause any of us to sin. Why? Because sex, money, and power are good things. They're so good, we'll, want, we'll take shortcuts to get them. Now, scientists are not immune to those. When you follow the money trail in COVID, when you follow the power trail in COVID, you realize what this is all about now. And that's why I appreciate so much Pastor Rob McCoy and Michelle McCoy because they stood against this. They stood against it. Mm -hmm. And the entire team did, right? And the entire congregation did because you realize that science doesn't say anything scientists do. And if scientists have a different agenda than just following the evidence where it leads, you're going to get bad advice. And Pastor Rob was talking about uh, my degree in public policy. The first book we, uh, we, I ever wrote with Dr. Geiser was called Legislating Morality. You always hear you can't legislate morality? That's all you can legislate. And when it comes to the separation of church and state, that's a whole nother question. But you know what Thomas Jefferson really meant by that? That the state could not interfere with the church. The church could influence the state, but the state couldn't tell the church what to do. And guess what they did during COVID? They kept strip clubs and abortion mills and alcohol stores open. And they said, churches, you're non-essential. That's a violation of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Thankfully, you stood here, Jack Hibbs, other Calvary Chapel pastors stood because you knew the truth. So thanks for supporting them in doing that. By the way, this is the reason also why there's a dispute between some scientists who say we were intelligently designed and others saying, no, we evolved without any intelligent intervention. Do you know the intelligent design people, who many of them are Christians, will, they'll be open to the two types of causes. Oh, maybe it's an intelligent cause that did this or maybe it's a natural cause that did it. But you know, atheists, they're not open 
to intelligent causes. They've ruled them out before they look at the evidence. So is it any wonder that when they look at the evidence, they interpret it in such a way as it's got to be a natural cause? Is that a result of the evidence or is that a result of their philosophical presupposition? It's a result of their philosophical presupposition. Garbage in equals garbage out. They're starting ruling out the possibility there's a God. So there's no way they're ever going to conclude there's got to be intelligently designed. Now, science is, of course, a very important part of our culture. It makes us much more comfortable, helps us live longer, unless it's a vaccine. And, um, but science isn't the most important thing in life. Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Let's run an experiment. No, that's not the way things work, right? Uh, now, how about this? You're going to hear this. You should doubt everything. Somebody says you should doubt everything. You turn the claim on itself. What are you going to ask? Yeah, should I doubt that? Why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? They don't seem to doubt that. Now, how many people in here, whether you're a Christian or not, how many people in here sometimes doubt that what you believe about God is true? Look, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're probably not thinking very much. Like, I've written books on this stuff, and sometimes I wake up in the morning and I go, I don't even know if this is true. You ever do that? And then I start thinking about my doubts, and I realize that my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. In other words, the evidence for Christianity is really good. I'm having a good day, everything's fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. What's changing, me or the evidence? Me, I'm going up and down. My psychology is changing. You know, on some of these college campuses, I'll meet former Christians, and they'll come up to me and go, hey, Frank, you know, I used to be a Christian, but I lost my faith. Do you know what I want to say to them? So? So are you telling me because your psychology changed that God has somehow popped out of existence? Are you telling me because your psychology changed, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Do you realize your psychology is not going to tell you the truth of, 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 of what's outside your skull? The evidence will. Your psychology can change with the weather. And it has in the past month or two here, hasn't it? Like, this is crazy. What's going on here? Should I build an ark? You know, I mean... Your psychology can change with the mood, can change with bad pizza you had last night. Don't allow your psychology to overpower the evidence. In fact, let me give you an example of this. There are some people that cannot get on an airplane. They're scared to death. But if you look at the evidence, the safest way to get anywhere is in an airplane. And yet some people will allow their psychology to overpower the evidence. Don't allow that to be you when it comes to eternity. Don't allow your psychology to overpower the truth, to overpower the evidence. Concentrate on the evidence. The evidence will tell you whether Christianity is true or not, not your psychology. So if you're having doubts, look at the evidence. And when you start looking at the evidence, and we'll do more tonight, you'll realize the evidence for Christianity is very good and you ought to start doubting your doubts. And if you start doubting your doubts, then you're back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. <laughs> oh, how about this? This is a big one in our culture. You ought not judge. In fact, Jesus said, don't judge. Why are you judging, you hypocrites? All right, let's put Jesus aside for just a moment. Logically, what's the problem with this claim? Yeah, someone says you ought not judge. You might want to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Or you might want to say, if we're not to judge, why are you judging me for judging? <laughs> See, it's a judgment. You say, didn't Jesus say don't judge? Nope, never said it. Sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. All right. I know this is going to sound a little weird, but stick with me. 
There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew was writing his biography that we call a gospel, he said, here's chapter 7, verse 1. No. When were the chapter and verse divisions put in? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text. Which is important, right? Because it's a really long series of books. If you tried to find your way in the Bible without numbers, it'd be really hard. I mean, imagine if Pastor uh, Rob was, pass, uh, was preaching here. Can you imagine him preaching here? Um, <laughs> you guys remember when he used to preach here? Anyway. <laughs> imagine if Pastor Rob came out with his Bible, and he didn't have numbers in his Bible, and you didn't have numbers in your Bible, and he said... Let's go about two-thirds of the way in. Let's see if we can find the right spot, right? No, you wouldn't be able to do that, right? You'd need numbers to find your way around. The problem is, is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can take it out and make it say whatever we want. You can't do that. You've got to look at the context. Now, what I'm about to say is going to annoy a lot of you, but that's okay. I'm leaving soon. Like tomorrow, <laughs> Pastor Rob can clean this up later. Um, this is why you should never claim that Jeremiah 29.11 is a promise to you. What's Jeremiah 29.11? That's a promise to the exiles that went to Babylon in 586 B.C. You know the passage I'm talking about. Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope. It's on coffee mugs. It's on pillows. It's on birthday cards. It's on posters. It's everywhere. And it's not a promise to 21st century Christians. It was a promise to people that were taken into exile. God said, 70 years from now, I'm going to prosper you. I got plans for you. I'm going to take you back to Judah and you'll prosper. I always ask people who quote Jeremiah 29 11 as if it's a promise to them today. I say, why don't you quote Jeremiah 44 11? Why? What's Jeremiah 44 11? Jeremiah 44 11 is what God promised to do to the exiles that went to Egypt. And he said, don't go to Egypt. But they went anyway. You know what Jeremiah 44, 11 says? I will destroy you in all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a birthday card. Happy birthday. I will destroy you in all Judah. Well, that is so sweet, Grandma. Thank you. No. We're taking stuff out of context. And the same thing is going on in Matthew chapter 7 when people say don't judge. What's the whole passage say? He says, judge not, lest you be judged by the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, which is a judgment, right? Take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem, fix it, then go help your brother. But it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Why? Number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made 100 judgments this morning just getting over here. And now you're going, this was a bad judgment. This guy's crazy. Where's Pastor Rob? Get him back in here. Dust him off. Get him back in here. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. They judge there's no God. They judge the Bible's not telling the truth. They judge Christianity's false. They judge there's no objective meaning or purpose to life. There's no hope. These are all judgments. 
The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? I will say this, though. Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? What was their job? What did they do? You guys are sounding a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher right now. They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. You see, the, San, or the, uh, the Romans delegated to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling Supreme Court, if you will, a lot of the lawmaking authority to this Sanhedrin. And on the Sanhedrin were many of the Pharisees. In other words, they were the politicians of Israel. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. What sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes! And then in John chapter 8, he's talking to these same Pharisees, these same politicians. And he's having an argument with them. And he's right in the middle of an argument when he stops and he says, Your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. <laughs> Can you imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you stop right in the middle and you go, Your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling, by the way. And then in Matthew chapter 23, again, Jesus going after the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert. And then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this. Yes, Jesus was not Barney. <laughs> Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No! I came to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. How often have you heard that verse preached? And everyone in here knows that verse is true. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you're divided within your own family, aren't you? And it's all because of Jesus. Jesus was tough. He wasn't Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? I mean, I mean, he's kind most of the time, but he certainly didn't go around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. <laughs> In fact, Jesus was tough. Why did they kill Jesus? Number one, because he claimed to be God, and that was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. And number two, he spoke truth to power, particularly the temple authorities like Caiaphas, who knew that if Jesus succeeded, he was out of a job. In fact, I think Caiaphas knew Jesus was the Messiah. He sees that Lazarus has been risen from the dead. And you know what Caiaphas says in John chapter 12? It's better that one innocent man die than the whole nation perish. He killed Jesus because he wanted to retain sex, money, power. He didn't want to lose his job. Better to kill Jesus, an innocent man, than me lose my job. 
By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. You ever notice when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, if you say to your best friend, I really love you. You're such a wonderful person. I wish you could be like you. You think your friend's going to say, well, who are you to judge? Nobody's going to say that, right? I've noticed that people don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get upset with you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. A few military people in here, and by the way, I was in the Navy for eight years, which stands for never again volunteer yourself. A <laughs> few military people in here, you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you tell somebody the truth and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. You start ex- shining light in the darkness, they're going to get mad at you. All right? So, there is truth out there. And you can judge. You just have to judge without being judgmental. Someone put it this way, that evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. None of us are going to make it to Jesus on our own. Actually, you can get to heaven by being good. I don't know if you know this or not. You can. You just got to be perfect your whole life. Too late for me. How about you? (laughs) Uh, You're you're not going to make it then. That's why you need a savior. So we have to make judgments without being judgmental. Now, we don't have time, but we could spend more time on these self-defeating statements you hear in our culture. Let me just summarize it this way. Can everyone see that this statement right here shoots itself? Anybody see this? All the other statements we went through are self-defeating as well. There are no absolutes. True for you, but not for me. All truth comes from science. You have your truth, I have my truth. You ought not judge. You can't know anything. All these statements are logically self-defeating. They're false. Stop believing in them. Ask people questions when they say things to help them realize that what they're believing is a lie so they can then therefore concentrate on the truth. Now, as Pastor Rob said, we go to a lot of college campuses. In fact, next week we'll be at the University of uh, Vermont. I'm hoping Bernie Sanders, Sanders will show up if he, if, he, if he leaves one of his three mansions. Um, in any event, this is actually a picture from an event we had at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And there they love the Bible about as much as the University of California berserkly does. Um, <laughs> And so we always have a microphone for Q&A after the event. And when an atheist gets up to the microphone, I'll normally ask them this question. And I recommend you ask this question of anyone who's not a Christian. Because this question just clears the decks of any objection and gets right to the heart of the matter. Here's the question you ought to ask people. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, No! No? I thought you claimed to be reasonable. How is it reasonable that you wouldn't believe something that was true? Well, it's not reasonable. The problem isn't in the head. The problem's in the heart. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun but selfish things, yet over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room over 40 years old knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves, right? I'm going to find happiness my way, the Frank Sinatra way. No, you're not. 
And if you go down that road, yeah, you'll be content. You'll be happy for a little while. But if you just live for yourself, if you live to be selfish, ultimately, you're going to wind up broken, alone, addicted, and probably prematurely dead. If you want to get contentment, you've got to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. Amen. In fact, Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will? What does that imply? If you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. You're in bondage to your own plans, your own will, your own sin, if you don't accept the truth. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way ends in death. So, always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? In fact, let me ask one other quick question. Uh, this is a, a survey question. This is just for the Christians in here. If you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. But just for the Christians, okay? Christians, I want you to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian, whom you'd like to be a Christian. Friend, relative, somebody like that. Everybody got someone? Okay, don't point at them. All right. Okay, here's my question. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? How many people say the person I'm thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. I have two half hands over there. They're not, okay, there's, there's maybe, maybe two or three. How many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? Yeah, look around the room. It's usually 100 to 0 or 99 to 1. The truth is most people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. They're not interested. They're running. This is why you should ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the person hesitates or says no, it's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. You keep giving them evidence, it's probably just going to annoy them. But it'll teach you quite a bit as to how to approach them from here on out. If you ask them if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they hesitate or say no, you should do these four things. Number one, you should pray. And continue to pray for them. Number two, you should plant seeds when you can. Little seeds of truth that may sprout later. Number three, you ought to love them, which doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. In fact, we'll talk about that tonight. And then number four, you wait. Why do you wait? Because tragedy normally strikes all of us at some point. If that person's ever going to be open, it's going to be when tragedy strikes. Then your phone's going to ring and that person's going to be on the other end. They're not going to call their atheist friend when tragedy strikes. What's the atheist going to say? Well, there's no rhyme or reason to life. This stuff just happens. Tough. No, they're going to call you a person of spiritual depth. When the student's ready, the teacher will appear. In fact, how many people in here came to faith at least partially through pain and suffering? It's probably 30% of us. How many people in here have grown in Christ through pain and suffering? Yeah, that should be all of us, right? So pray, plant seeds love, and then wait. Now, one other question. How many people in here know of someone who's not a Christian because someone in the church treated them poorly? Whoa. This is probably 70% of us. 
I want you to ask that person when you get an opportunity, to, I want you to ask them this question. This comes from historian John Dixon. He asked this question. When somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. So when somebody plays Jesus poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Jesus. Look, just because I'm not true and beautiful doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. In fact, when we play Jesus poorly, it's not an indictment on Jesus or Christianity. Newsflash, Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. So keep your eyes on Jesus. In fact, it's partially proving our worldview true when people don't treat other people well. If we were perfect, would we need a savior? No. We're fallen. That's why we need a savior. So if you're letting somebody who treated you poorly keep you out of the truth, you're not realizing that Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. So always ask them, when somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. When somebody plays Jesus poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the source and the perfecter of the faith. Now, truth does exist, which means relativism and postmodernism are false. The idea that there is no truth, that's false. They claim it's true. There's no, there's, there's no truth. Here's the problem. Many of our universities, probably most of our universities, and tragically many of our high schools have bought into the truth that there is no truth. They bought into postmodernism and relativism. Isn't it crazy, ladies and gentlemen, we're sending our kids to universities at, say, 50 grand a year to have some atheist professor teach them the truth that there is no truth. You don't have to do that. In fact, get Charlie Kirk's book, The College Scam. There are other options. All right? Now, the next question is, is it true that God exists? And we're going to cover that tonight, as well as Miracles, New Testament, and your questions. But if you want to go further... We have some books left on the book table and some DVDs. And I want to point out, by the way, that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. <laughs> Just so you know. I got three sons, so I need some help. Come on. Actually... Text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. Text the word evidence because I'm going to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation that I've showed you. All It's actually 360 slides. I've showed you like 20 of them today. In a PDF format for free. Uh, and about five other presentations as well in a PDF format. And for those of you at home watching in your pajamas. Yeah, I know you lost an hour of sleep. You should be here next week. Pastor Rob's going to be here. We're going to dust them off, bring them back up here. All right? But you can do this too. The number is 855-909-0582. 855-909-0582. Text the word evidence. For those of you that want to get a book, there's a few more on the book table. There's a 12-part DVD series that's over seven hours long and includes q and I'm presenting the entire presentation. And uh, you can get that. Uh, some people use that for small groups, for home schools, for Sunday schools. There's workbooks you can get with it. And the brand new book my son and I just wrote, who's in the Air Force, but he's also a seminary graduate. Uh, it's called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. I know 
Hollywood puts out a lot of junk. But if you look at the top blockbuster movie franchises of the past 40 or 50 years, all of them have stolen from the greatest story ever told. The story of Christianity. So if you have a young person, or even an older person that loves movies, this book is going to walk them through these movies and point out how Christianity is laced through all of them, and some of the writers don't even know it. Okay? And so there's life lessons in there, apologetics, and theology in that book. And Pastor Rick's going to close this out right now. Pastor Rick. It's so important to connect with people like Dr. Frank Turek and his ministry for apologetics because he gives us the tools to equip us to be able to have good answers in difficult situations because we live in this really crazy age where there's nothing uh, like absolute truth and being able to just turn those claims, which he declared, you have to get really good at it. It takes a while to figure out how to do that. So what a blessing. But he mentioned something as we close here today that, you know, when I'm ministering to somebody and I have uh, parents, oftentimes they have a prodigal, a son or a daughter, you raise them in the ways of the Lord, and now they're in their 20s or their 30s or 40s, and they're not walking with the Lord. And it breaks your heart, and you're praying for them. Anybody in that category? Yeah. And we're, there's nobody that makes us lose sleep no matter how old they are, like our kids, right? Or your grandkids. But when I pray with parents, I always tell them, Pray that life gets too big for them because they always know where the answers are, even though they don't want to submit now. Because what brings people to their knees is when life is bigger than them and they cannot handle what they're going through. Now, if I'm only praying with a mom, they usually are a little concerned with my very aggressive prayer. And they're like, don't pray that way for my Johnny. I'm like, well, do you want Johnny in heaven? Let's pray that the Lord takes him to the woodshed and spanks his butt. So that he'll say, Jesus is Lord, right? Well, I don't know. It seems so unloved. No, we're going to love Johnny right into the kingdom, but he's going to go via the woodshed. That's the way it's going to work. Because truly, life will get too big for you where everywhere you look. And some kids have to have their own experience of running down the road that they think the money, the power, the sex the drugs, whatever it is, that they're going to run down that road and it's going to fulfill them only to get there and find a dead end like the rest of us. Amen? So uh, at the end, after we worship, if you, if you have a broken heart that somebody you're praying for, the prayer team's going to be down here. They'd love to pray with you, join with you as you intercede for those people you love in your life that the Lord would go after them. And go after them with a fearless love. But his love is gentle and yet he knows how to bring them to the place of crying uncle and turning to the Lord. Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Pray that you would meet us in a very special way right now. Lord, I know that there's a lot of hearts here today that are thinking about loved ones that they've been trying to reach. They want to see in the kingdom. They want to see in heaven. So, Lord, we pray that you would intercede on behalf of every prayer that is rising to you from the hearts of your people. Lord, we pray that you would go after those whom we love. You said that you would show mercy to a thousand generations of those who love you. So Lord, would you show mercy to our children and our grandchildren, our family and friends, Lord. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking. I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 I will keep my heart.